Okay, Erev Tov. Here at Shiftei Yisrael, Shiftei Leadership Cohort. Studying tonight, tonight's topic is Shimshon's weakness, Boaz's restraint, and managing our own, our own hungers. Uh, this is a, this is an issue that not only leaders deal with, but leaders deal with in a unique, in a unique, unique way. It's interesting if we just think about the leaders, how many leaders, you know, that we know who get caught up in scandals, who are at the top of their game, top of the world, running Fortune 500 companies, tens of thousands of people under them, and they make really foolish mistakes. And you, and you think like, what? What are you doing? You're giving all of this up for that. Can you think of an example? Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. It's a very good example. Bill Clinton's a really good example. Um, why would someone like Bill Clinton, again, the most powerful man in the world, why does he risk all of it for a little bit of pleasure? I mean, it, it's a very strange thing that a person is not able to control themselves in those circumstances and, and, and literally risk his presidency. I mean, right? He was, he was, he was impeached based on this. He ends up, you know, risking his whole legacy, you know, throughout, you know, you look up Google, one of the things that comes up is, you know, the, 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 uh, the things that Bill Clinton did with XYZ. And, and you're risking so much for a temptation, for a little bit of, of, of pleasure. Other examples. King Edward. Melech David, which you spoke about. Who did you say, King? King Edward. King Edward. Tell us about King Edward. He gave up the throne of England to, to, uh, to marry the divorcee or something. To marry an American, nonetheless, right? Oh, I mean, uh, no, right? He was also involved with neo Nazis or something. He was wasn't such a great guy. Yeah, there were neo Nazis at the time, but now they're just Nazis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the real thing. <laughs> the real thing. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else come to mind? King Charles, Prince Charles. Yeah. Wow, Diana. Okay, so all of these examples are with, uh, you know, sexual promiscuity. Other examples that come to mind? Adam v'chava, right? Giving up paradise, Gan Eden, for, and according to Christian literature, it's an apple, but it's some fruit. It could be a grain, it could be an etrog, it could be uh, grapes. Nachon, giving up so much for so little. Okay, but that's not necessarily a, a leadership situation. These are leadership situations. People are uh, empowered. Story, a story of the South African rabbi who was sleeping around with uh, sure attendees. I don't believe. Okay, no, no, this is really significant. It's important you bring this up. Rabbis, people in religious positions. Uh, we can go through a whole list of rabbis in Israel who have gone through scandals in the last bunch of years. Um, there are financial scandals, but also, you know, sexual scandals. Um, this happens quite a bit. And somehow, you know, you just look at the situation, you wonder, like, why would someone give up all that they have for, for this? What's going on here? And what we're going to see tonight, there's more going on here than just some extra money that you make or some pleasure. There, there's something else happening to a person's psyche when they're in a leadership position. Um, beyond just the, the momentary local pleasure or benefit that they receive, okay? And that's what I want to explore tonight through two different biblical personalities. One of them is Shimshon, the other one is Boaz. And they came together in my mind because, well, I'm actually teaching the story of Shimshon now to the women's Tanakh Shiur on Wednesday morning. Uh, we're going through Sefer Shoftim this year. And Migilat Rud is coming up. And I'm already thinking about Migilat Rut, Rut, Boaz. What am I going to teach about Migilat Rut this coming uh, Chag? Then I thought, hey, wait a second. What about where they converge, where they come together? Differences and similarities between these two fascinating, fascinating personalities. So let's start with, with Shimshon. Anyone remember? Tell me a little bit about Shimshon. Good guy or bad guy? Good guy? Yeah, good. What's good about him? He was a Shofet. Okay, so that's... Definitely had a significant position, a status, a position of power. He was a Shofet from Shevet Dan. Shevet Dan's all the way up in the north. The only uh, leader we know from, specifically from Shevet Dan. What else? You said complicated. Why complicated? He was a show-off. He was uh, he, he a show-off. His neighbors, uh, you know, the Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, what else does he do? He uh, has uh, many interactions with uh, women that maybe... Many interactions. He has three interactions with all with what appears to be non-Jewish women. Okay, he is an enigma of probably the most, one of the most enigmatic and confounding biblical personalities. And there are a lot of them. Shimshon really doesn't make sense. Okay, let's understand what happens to Shimshon. Who is he? And why he makes very little sense. And then we're going to try to understand the, the message of his life. So we're in Shoftim Perak Yud Gimel. Okay, top, uh, top here. There's a little bit of context. Jewish people are sinning, cycle of uh, sinfulness. They're put in the hands of the plishtim. This, this is a new enemy. The plishtim are the new enemy of the Jews at this point in time. Who eventually vanquishes the plishtim? Anybody know? Who eventually destroys them? David HaMelech. David HaMelech is going to be the one who is able to finally overcome the plishtim. They are major, major sore point and problem for the Jewish people for many years. They probably came from uh, either the, you know, GNC, they were travelers, they, you know, and they, they, they lived on the coast, literally what's today, today uh, Gaza. And they, uh, I mean, the, the, they, because of their name, you know, the land of Israel takes on the word uh, Palestine, okay? Um, interesting, the, the, the Romans specifically called the land of Israel Palestine, to show the Jews in second, third century, this is not your land, this belongs to the Plishtim, okay? And an ironic twist of history, the Palestinians, okay, of today, took on the name Palestinians, okay, even though you go back to, you know, history books, and I don't know, the 20s, 30s, and there was, they just used this term, they were, they were known as Arabs, okay? Uh, but now they started calling themselves Palestinians, uh, which... Again, ironically, was the, or not so ironically, it's the same term the Romans use to try to, you know, show, hey, this is not your land. Actually, this is the, the Plishti land, you know, who, you know, who came here, you know, you know in, in, in a thousand years beforehand. So just fascinating. Now, man by the name of Manoach, his wife can't have any children, and uh, fine. Classic biblical story. The Malach Hashem comes. Huh? Mitzor, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It could be. There's a part of uh, of Shevet Dan that came down from the north. That uh, okay. Uh, yes, it's very possible because a lot of things that happened to Shimshon happened in the area of the coast. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes sense. Now, uh, so the Malach Hashem says, "You're Akara. You know, don't worry. You're going to have a child." This sounds like many you know, biblical earlier biblical stories. Uh, you know, Abraham and, and Sarah and Rivka, etc. But here's a special condition. Okay, he tells the wife, we don't know her name, by the way, she should not drink any wine. Okay, she's no, no liquor, no hard drinks. Don't eat anything that's tamay. You're going to have a child. And a razor cannot come on his face. He's going to be a Nazarite from the time of his birth. Can you describe for me what type of kid do you think this is going to be? Is he going to be a football player? Is he going to be a wild? Or is he going to be a, a scholar? Is he going to be a chnun? A good, you know, going to be a bookworm? What type of person is he going to be when he comes from the womb? Huh? You see, he's going to be a military guy, a warrior. But he's very religious. He's very from. He's going to be a Nazir. He's like a Shmuel character. More religious than military. Right? So, so this is fascinating. By the way, halachically, we don't impose Nazirut on a person. It's a unique situation. We don't impose Nazirut on a person before they're born. A person chooses to be a Nazir. takes a vow of Nazirut. We just study Masech Nazir and Dafyomi. Okay. So, but we think, we assume this guy is going to be a religious personality at, at most basically, right? It's going to be a from guy. Now what happens, Kaftalad, we skip a few. God blesses him. The, the, the spirit of Hashem sort of resonated within him. Next parak. First thing that Shimshon does in his life. Shimshon timnata, timnata, 
He goes down to Timna, he goes to a disco party at night, and he sees one of these women. He says, wow, beautiful. I, I, I found my, my bashert, I found my shirach. Just so happens to be that she is plishti. So he should convert her, right? Yeah? Right? Convert her? Okay, let's see what happened. He says to his parents, I want to marry this girl. Wait, there's no, no, no Jewish girls? You went through all the databases? You, you set up with all of them? You're on, uh, you know, all the Jewish websites? Uh, you know, everything? And, and you, the only thing you can find is a plishti woman? And, and notice he calls them miplishtim ha'arelim. He's uncircumcised plishtim. No, I want her. She is yashar. She is good in my eyes. Farley, does this guy sound like a nazir to you? No. No, he doesn't even sound very Jewish. He doesn't sound very... I mean, he's Jewish, obviously. He doesn't sound very... Uh, like, what is wrong with him? Of all things, this is the opposite of the way you'd think he would behave. Intermarry, it's not even one of the prohibitions of a Nazir, by the way. It's just, it's, it's, it's like off the charts problematic. Okay, and he's, he's, he's going to be the Shofet, and he wants to go marry a, a non Jewish woman. I don't know, fiddler in the roof, right? Your parents are involved in. Uh... It's not modern times when uh, you go and find a woman for yourself. It's a famous chuva by the Maharik, who was an Italian posek, 15th century, Renaissance era, who has a whole discussion about, for the first time, this notion of romantic love emerges in Italy, and someone finds, oh, it's fascinating that that this came up. Oh, I didn't bring this as a source. It's an article by... um, Oh, I'm just forgetting his name right now. He's a professor at, uh, at Bar-Ilan, professor in Jewish studies, and he wrote an article about this piece in the Maharik, okay? This truth in the Maharik, where there's an example of romantic love, and a parent wants to, the child wants to choose who he wants to marry, and the parents aren't so happy about it. And you know, before this, people just, you know, uh, they were set up by their parents, there was a financial element to it. It wasn't like we, today, you meet a girl and you bring her home and say, this is what I'm marrying, and that's it. You know, like it or don't like it. And the Maharik argues that it's okay for the child. He says, actually, there's now I'm remembering more of it. I brought this down once in a, in a shir I gave on Kibbut Ava'im. Does Kibbut Ava'im entail that you marry the person, you date the person your parents want you to marry? And the Maharik says, no. Kibbut Ava'im is about, hey, mom and dad, can I give you some water? Can I give you some food? Can I pick you up from the airport? Can I give you a chair? Can I... You're taking care of their material, physical needs, but it does not include following all their opinions. You don't have to do what they want in this regard. You can live your life as you want to live it. Okay? Now, the example he brings, the example he brings uh, for, uh, uh, in terms of the, the Maharik, the example he brings is, is, uh, is Shimshon. That just like Shimshon goes and marries uh, the women of his, uh, that he wants to, so too, um, you know, so too, one should, be, uh, one should be allowed to do this as well. Um, wait, one second. One second, I'm just pulling something up here. In the Jewish journal. Okay, no, Okay. Okay, yeah, one second. Oh, no, he doesn't bring in... Okay. Nearly a century after the Maharik, Revelyahu Kapsali of Crete amplifies this ruling and makes it clear that romantic love is a Jewish value. So the Maharik said, you don't need to follow your parents. And then Revelyahu Kapsali takes this further and says, romantic love, he sort of embraces it. He said, forcing a man to marry someone he doesn't love only creates anger and bitterness in the home, which is contrary to the Torah. The son's love must be respected. And he quotes in his connection a verse from the Song of Song of Songs. Vast floods cannot quench love, nor rivers, uh, nor rivers drown it. Love is critical to marriage. Jeffrey Wolf, that's the professor I was thinking about, lives in Efrat. In his analysis of Kapsali's response, explains that its emphasis on romantic love contains Renaissance echoes. While it is true, Kapsali makes a persuasive case that romantic love is very much a part of the Jewish tradition, beginning with the Bible. 
Okay, and then he goes, okay, uh, Avram and Yitzchak, he speaks about, um, where is it he talk, where is he talk about Shimshon? Um, one second, let me just see if I could find Shimshon, because it's such a fascinating, um, such a fascinating source. Ah, no, uh, Samson Rafael Hirsch. Okay, happens to have been in a related, similar article. But anyway, Bikitsur, he brings Shimshon as an example of go and pick the person that you want to marry. And Shimshon himself does this. Okay, and we'll talk about conversion a little bit. Fine. Next story with Shimshon. Um, and, you know, he's, you know it, he sort of goes back and forth between searching out these women and also killing Plishtim and taking a vengeance against them and... Uh, you know, at one point he, he collects foreskins of, of Plishtim, okay, and he, and, he, and he dumps them on, uh, you know. So, okay. This is in Perak, uh, Zayin. Shimshon comes to Aza, and he sees a prostitute, and he has relations with her. Okay. Now, the Azatim hear this, um, the, the, the plishtim hear that Shimshon is, is in this, you know, Zona's house, and they encircle the house and say, we're going to kill him in the morning. He stays there until the middle of the night. He gets up in the middle of the night, Remember that phrase? He takes the two gates of the city. He takes the doors of the city, puts them on his shoulders. Uh, it sounds like, again, we're somewhere between Aza and Hebron here. He puts them on his shoulder and he carries them all the way to Hebron. Okay? It's a bit of a, it's like Iron Man type of uh, behavior here. Okay, remember this. Chevron, Chevron. Who goes to visit Chevron in Tanakh? Kalev. Kalev. Why does he go to Chevron according to Rashi? When does Kalev go to Chevron? Chevron, Chevron, Shelanu. Why does he go to Chevron to? Lit Balalshan. Right? Because of the Atzat Hameraglim. Okay, so, okay, that story, that's, again, an example here, a clear example of sort of doing something against the Plishtim, but also being taken in by some woman. Third story. He falls in love with Delilah. There are definitely songs with Delilah in it, right? Okay. So now the Plishtim are getting smarter. They say... Figure out what this guy's strength is. Figure it out. What is this guy about? What's the source of his strength? And how could we overcome him? We'll, uh, we'll chain him. We'll pay you a lot of money. She asks him explicitly, what gives you your power? How could we restrain you? He gives her all these ideas. None of them work. They tie him up. They bind him, etc., etc., what happens a few psukim later? She keeps nudging him and bothering him. What's your what's the source of your power? What's going on here? Finally, he gives in. What does that sound like? He's like holding a lot. He's holding a lot. Why is he sharing? What is he sharing with her? Vayomer la, and he finally tells her, He says, I am a Nazir, I have never shaved. The source of my power is my hair. Okay? It's his hair. Now, in general, there's no suggestion in the Psukim that the Nazir is, is, that there's extra strength that comes from his hair specifically. But this is Shimshon, who is who is unique. Okay. So what does she do? 
So what happens? Um, they shave his head, and indeed he is weakened. He loses, loses all his strength. What do they do to him next? Prison him and gouge out his eyes. Okay? So Shimshon is powerful. Shimshon has been subdued. Put him to prison. Anybody remember what happens at the end of the story? Yeah? Okay, so he's imprisoned. They have this huge party with 3,000 people, okay? Who And he is a prop at the party, right? He's standing there chained between these two different pillars. And they're all laughing at him. They, look, this is the Shimshon. Now, but what happened at this, at, at, by this point in time? His hair grows back. So his strength is renewed. Now, Okay, now, this song, I remember learning the song in the army. Okay, remember, what does it mean? Remember me, strengthen me, just this one time, Hashem. And I will avenge the plishtim, you know, from my two eyes, just this one time. Okay, when we sang it in the army, sometimes the word plishti was uh, substituted with other, other terms. I'm not justifying this, I'm just explaining what sometimes would happen. Uh, I was a soldier in Nachal in the middle of the second intifada, so you can imagine the, 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 the rawness of, uh, of what we were dealing with. Um, but uh, yeah, what happens? Vayupot shimshon et shnei amudei hatavech. So he sort of grasps the two pillars and pulls them together and the whole building is, you know, this is like this, these are the central pillars. Um, says, I'm going to die now with the plishtim. And they all died. He killed more people when he, in his death than he did in his, in his life. And everyone falls to their burial and their death. And, uh, and uh, okay, Vayyaduachav, his brothers come, they take his body back. Okay, if I, you know, there is a place, Ashtol, by Beit Shemesh. By? By? Yeah, by Ikea, that's right. Is a key around then, or it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like, can you imagine if we were writing Tanakh today? Bein Ikea, Uvein, you know. Like it's, <laughs> so, okay, there are a lot of questions about the story of Shimshon. Number one, again, this guy is, this is a Nazir. How do we explain this? Uh, number two, um, was he a success? Was he a failure, Shimshon? What is the ultimate message of his of his life? Okay, let's look at Rabbi Michael Hatton here, who has a, a book on Sefer Shoftim. Yeah. I think a lot of like the thing about the Shoftim, if you read Sefer yeah. Shoftim, like we you know we attribute they were the ones who were leading the the different tribes, so we sort of call them leaders, and we say yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them had major issues. They were more like war generals than people yeah, who... Yeah, they weren't... Uh, yeah, but it's true of all the leaders we have throughout the time. No, but, time. I, but it's not... But like, specifically in Shofet... So just because he was a Shofet doesn't mean he was a... Doesn't mean he was a role model or someone that you want to... Correct. There are better and worse Shofet teams. There's no question about it. In the beginning of the book, it's actually a descent. beginning of the book, they're better, and they get worse and worse. He happens to be the last Shofet. What happens after him... Are two of the most atrocious stories in Pesel Milcha, in all of Tanakh, civil war, thousands of people killed, almost a whole shevet is taken out. It gets really ugly. Okay. Now let's talk about the Nazir piece. Rabbi Michael Hatton, Shimshon, therefore, like all the judges who came before him, is an embodiment of the challenges of his own age, a reflection of his people's failures, a likeness of their ignominy, ignominy, and also an expression of their hopes for deliverance. The strictures of the Nazir inexplicably placed upon him by divine fiat are an emphatic declaration that for Israel to survive as a nation in Canaan, for Israel to succeed at preserving its unique patrimony in a world inimical to their mission, for Israel to arrest 
they're precipitous declining to break the cycle of betrayal and treachery. They must react. And that reaction, like that of the sensitive soul, struck dumb by the degradation of the sota and by the implied collapse of all the sacred trusts invested in the bond of marriage, must initially be one of abrupt and unequivocal withdrawal and alienation from the pervasive culture that seductively and destructively beckons them from all around. What he's saying here is that the Nazir, this model of a Nazir is about separating from Canaanite culture. Distance yourself. Withdraw yourself. Now, why is he talking about the Sotah? The Nazir and the Sotah are presented together in Sefer Bamidbar. When are we going to read about them? Next week's parasha, Parashat Naso. They're put next to each other. Why are they juxtaposed one to the other? To teach us when a person sees a woman a Sotah. You know, misbehaving, and there's a back and forth with her husband, and all these problems. You know what's going to happen? A person says, you know what? I need to pull back and make sure I don't fall into the same trap. I'm going to become a Nazir. Becoming a Nazir is a response to the promiscuity of the sota, And that's what Shimshon is, is, it's established that he's going to be a Nazir to wake up Am Yisrael that they need, they need, they need to change their ways. And he's going to be an embodiment of the changes they need to make. Does he fulfill this mission? That's the next piece. Shimshon, in a very symbolism of an unusual way uh, of life, is therefore to proclaim to his people the only possibility for the restoration that remains. Overcome apathy and spiritual torpor, protest against immorality and idolatry, and break ranks with corrosive kind of beliefs and practices that have brought us to the brink of self-destruction, even as the seditious uh, satires continue to entice. Does Shimshon succeed in his role, yes or no? Absolutely not. No way. He kills a few plishtu. Is there real spiritual growth in his age? Absolutely not. Total failure. Let's look at Breshid Rabbah. In, in the context of the brachot that Yaakov gives, look at the last line here. Yaakov thinks, according to the Midrash, that Shimshon is going to be Mashiach. Mashiach. But then what happens? Mashiach. He had hopes you'd be Mashiach, and his, his, his hopes are dashed. And that's why in the Birchot of Yaakov, he calls out, God, save us, give us, give us help. The Ramban goes a little bit further than Breshit Rabbah and points out, go to the next page. Ramban says, the words of the Psukim refer to Anachash. And Anachash is referring to Shimshon. Basically, after, the, the, after Shimshon is, is killed, uh, it's the end of an era, a bit of period of major disappointment, where he says, you know what, these Shoftim, they can't save us. God, you, only you alone can save us. Now, in the Talmud Bali Masachat Sotah, which we're finishing up, there's a whole section of Masachat Sotah about Midah, Kenegad Midah, measure for measure, quid pro quo. He sees with his eyes, right? He's attracted and seduced by these beautiful women, and therefore his eyes are gouged, are gouged. Okay? So, uh, so there's a, a Midah, Kenegad Midah. Now, this is this is Shimshon. Yeah. How does how does Shimshon become a leader? What was the process? He's chosen from birth. Before he's pr- chosen from conception. By who? By the Malach Hashem, by God. That was at the beginning. He's told his parents are told when before his mother's even pregnant, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a nazir. She was the, fact, the fact that he became a nazir does that mean he's the leader of? The- I, I don't, like, no, he, is that the implication? He, it's not because he was an Azir, but that is the role that he, he that he plays. Now, what do we make of the fact that he shares? What does he share with Dalila when he shares Belibo? What is he sharing with her? Too much information, correct? TMI. But what 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 is it that he's? It sounds like he's unburdening something. He's probably being put on this pedestal this whole life. He's going to see here's a shofar. He just needs to let, like... Yes, yes. He's like, they've imposed this whole Nizirut stuff on me, and that's not who I am. 
It's like the person who walks into psychologist's office for the first time and realizes, oh my God, my parents have all these expectations and my, my this and my teachers and my this and I, I'm not living up to it. It's not who I am. It's not the authentic me. He unburdens all of it. That's the, that's the suggestion in the, in, the, in the psukim. There's almost a need to share with her his deepest, darkest secrets. So, so ultimately, what is the message about Shimshon? Shimshon is a guy who could have reached very high spiritual heights. But he's just running after all these women in the end. It's like human weakness. Seduction. Right? He has the capacity to, to change the entire direction of, uh, of, you know, of Sefer Shoftim, and he totally fails. And, and things go, get even worse after this. Pesel Micha, Pelegesh Begiva. But it, it starts with Shimshon. Okay? So, you know, and again, it's the small stuff. It's the, it's the women, it's the seduction, it's the... That's the stuff that's, that, that, that ruins everything for him and makes him essentially a failed shofet. Did, uh, yeah. Did the Hilan know who he was when, when he first... Yeah, oh, they all knew who Shimshon was. When he first met yeah. him. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like they all knew. They're all surrounding his house. Could, uh, could she have had ulterior motives? No, she had terrible motives. Oh, was she trying to help him? No, no, no. no. no, no maybe I'm missing something. She was like a double agent. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was no. She was trying to bring him down. Yeah. I yeah. mean, even before he. She was a bad. She down. was bad. She was on the side of the police team. Correct. Correct. No. Compare this with Boaz. Boaz, we're going to see the opposite narrative. Boaz comes from. You're a little biased, brother. No, no bias, it's true. It's true. We have a Boaz, Boaz Moshe. We chose his name for a particular reason, because we love the name, and he's an incredible character in, uh, in Tanakh. Huh? Is anyone here a Shimshon? I know people name their kids Shimshon. It's interesting. Like, you know, you don't see it so often. Shimshon or Fal Hirsch. I don't know. So Boaz, although I also remember giving a, doing a bar mitzvah with a kid whose name was Nimrod. Nimrod. So, uh, you know, it's become like a common name today in Israel. Omri also. Omri. Omri. Yeah, Omri is like really, uh, yeah. There was a kosher restaurant in the, in, the, in the business district of Manhattan that they called Izevel. <laughs> okay. Izevel uh, wasn't a... No. She wasn't a bad character. She's just... Izevel was Ahab's wife. No, but what was in it? Yeah, Izevel. Like, no, what... Is, is, what was in it? Isabel is like the... Isabel is, yeah. So the restaurant had an O.U. Hechsher on it. Okay, and they made... They changed the name because it's like... Like, how could you name... Uh, what was, but what was the name of the restaurant? It was... I don't think it was... It was the English version of... Jezebel? It was Jezebel. They called it Jezebel. Exactly. Now, Isabel, yeah, Isabel's connected, but they called the restaurant Jezebel, and they made them change the name because they didn't think it was appropriate for a kosher restaurant to have the name Jezebel. So, uh... Jezebel has become culturally like a kind of woman. Yeah, what do you mean? Oh, oh you were saying it's a term like, she's a, a Jezebel? Yeah, Ah, interesting. I don't know that. Interesting. Right. Okay, so, Boaz is, um... Now, Boaz is the great-great-great-grandfather of David HaMelech. That we know. David HaMelech has two fascinating lineage on both sides that are fascinating. On the one side, he has, he has Boaz and Ruth. What's on the other side? There's Tamar. Okay, so okay, that's also Yehuda. So on Yehuda's side, David is from... Okay, there's, essentially there's, there's Ruth on one side. Okay, and then there's also Yehuda. Okay, now Ruth, um, Ruth comes from what tribe? Let's go back in history a little bit. What tribe does Ruth come from? She's a Moabite. Moab. Okay, and how did Moab come into existence? Through incest. Lot's two daughters think the world has come to an end after a story of uh, of Sodom, the destruction of Sodom. They sleep with their father. They make him, they, you know, intoxicate him. Sleep with him. They have two children, Moab and Ammon. Okay? 
Is Lot the good guy or is that like a really problematic story? That's Moab. That's Rut. What about on the Yehuda side? Yudan and Tamar. It's a part you don't learn in, uh, in Breshit. When you learn in you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you don't learn the story of Yudah and Tamar. What happens, Yudah's daughter, sons are each married to Tamar. They keep dying from um, uh, whatever, indecent behavior. And then finally, what's supposed to happen? The assumption is that he's supposed to give Shelah his youngest son to Tamar. He fails to do this. And so Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, meets him on the road, in Timnah, and, by the way. In Timnah fascinating, yeah. in Timnah. And she's basically, you know, seduces uh, Yehuda. And so Yehuda has relations with her. There's no idea who she is at the time. He gives her a promise of an Erevon, a collateral. He finds out a few weeks later, a few months later, Tamar is pregnant. He says, she should be burned to death. She then sends the collateral back to him and he realizes, oh my God, I'm the one who impregnated my daughter-in-law. Okay? He, they have two children. What are the names? Zerach and? Peretz. Yafemod, Peretz. Okay? And Peretz, notice in the first source here, Ruth, Peretz, Dalad, is the end of Migilat Ruth. So you have Peretz, comes from Yehuda, and you have then Rut. So David Melech, his lineage has two different problematic sort of. I mean, imagine David Melech going to the Rabbanut today. Okay, like, <laughs> imagine we're trying to explain, well, you know, it was, there wasn't a conversion, but, you know, my, one of my great-grandfathers slept with the, the daughter-in-law, and, you know, that's how my, yeah, Perez was born, and then on the other side, there, well, there was a conversion, there was root, but there was, there was uh, like, it sounds, you know, pretty messy. I'm not sure David Melech would have passed the Rebbeinu test of, uh, of 2023. Okay, Tavshin Pegimel. But in any case, that's, how, that's where David comes from. It's very problematic uh, lineage. Now, what happens in Ruth Parakimel? Ruth Parakimel, Ruth comes back with Naomi to Eretz Yisrael. They're, they're both widowed. Okay? They don't have any money. They show up at the field of Boaz. And Boaz was a relation to, uh, to uh, Naomi. And so Ruth collects sheaves there on a daily basis. And that's how they sustain themselves. And she takes care of Naomi. She's very loyal, etc., etc. Now, in Paragimel, the, the season has ended, and the gathering season has ended, and Naomi basically suggests to Ruth, Ruth, go and, go and do what? Seduce. Yeah, like make an advance of sorts. Like Seduce. Say again? Sleep at the edge of his bed. Okay, well. But isn't he, there's that one person who's closer yeah. than him as a redeemer, otherwise he's left in him. Correct. Correct, but what she's essentially going to do is to seduce him, right? Um, what she sort of falls in line with this whole tradition of problematic sexual behavior in the Melech's, in you know, in these in these stories. So what happens is she dresses up, and I look at pasuk in root paragimel pasuk Basically, Naomi tells her to do. She goes. She dresses up. Boaz is drunk. He's in the field. They have this festival, and he's sleeping in the field. She goes quietly, surreptitiously. She Anybody know what that means? Curious how they translate it literally here. What does vatigal margilotav mean? Uncovers his feet, okay, um, which may be a little bit more than just uncovering his feet, okay. I'm just curious, what is, how do they translate here in the Mekorin Tanakh? Let's see what they say. Kohelet. Yes, 
Kohelet. Root. Okay. Let's see how they translate this. What pasuk was that? Pasuk. What pasuk was that? Zayin. Okay. Uncovered his feet and lay herself down. Okay, maybe a little bit more than covering his feet. Uh, likely so. Huh. Where'd we see that phrase? Pesach. And Shimshon. The man, you know, becomes shake, he's shaken or something. Okay, and Vayila Fate. Okay. And what does that mean? Like he, he, he like turned over and he sees a woman lying at his feet. Okay. Vayila Fate Vine Isha Shochevet Margalota. Vayila Fate, did you see that word before? Does it appear anywhere else in Tanakh? Any balei kriya here? Does this appear anywhere else in Tanakh? This word vayilafet. But the thing is, like he turns over, like what, what, you know, what's happening here? Vayomer, okay. V'nei yishai He sees a woman sleeping right next to him. Now, pasuk tet is a fascinating thing that happens. Boaz can. Well, he can continue with this. He can respond to her advance in one of two ways. He can continue with it, or he could stop it and say, wait a second, this is, I don't know who you are, this is inappropriate, There's, this is deeply problematic. Vayomer mi'at. He says, wait a second, who are you? Vatomer anochiruta matecha. I am root, your maidservant. Ufarasta kenafecha la matcha kigo elata. And please, you know, basically, it's sort of like a marriage proposal. You know, cover your wings, you know, uh, upon me because you have the ability to be my redeemer. So, how does he respond? Vayomer bruchat. Blessed are you, Lashem, BT. Heitavt. This latter chesed is even greater than your first. Meaning, not only did you help your mother-in-law, but you're also now, you're, you're willing to marry me. Okay, he's moved by this gesture. Etc., etc. Okay, don't worry, we'll try to work things out that I'll be your, that I will be your redeemer. Now, this pause, is fascinating. There's an article by Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz called The Jewish Sexual Ethics. Fascinating article. He writes this in the 70s. Um, one, the first page, I remember, it's something very memorable here where he talks about how the, the sexual revolution of the 70s and the, in the 60s and 70s is a, is a rebellion against 2,000 years of Christian, um, you know, Christian, um, uh, how should we say, um, uh, you know, sort of cursing, you know, frowning upon, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, yeah, oppression, uh, you know, repre- repression of, of the sexual urge. Okay, one's a response to that. But he then studies the story of, uh, there's a famous story, Masachem Menachot, of a man who has tzitzidan, and uh, he goes to visit a harlot out in the, you know, out at sea, and uh, he's supposed to be this beautiful woman, and what happens to the tzitzit? They start hitting him in the face. Okay, it's a story about how tzitzit protect us, etc. But something fascinating happens in that story. Berkovitz points out that these two people who don't know each other, who are treating each other like physical, sexual objects, they step off the bed that they're on and they come and sit on the floor. And they start to have a conversation. He says, well, who are you? And she says, well, who are you? They actually have a conversation, like a human conversation. And suddenly, instead of there being two sexual objects there, there are two personalities, two people who are encountering each other as human beings. Now, they end up talking and conversing and they end up getting married at a certain point. She converts, okay? And she's moved by his religiosity and his piety, etc., etc. Now, what, what Berkowitz points out from the story is the, the notion of redeeming the sexual urge, personalizing the most impersonal of urges and thereby redeeming it, okay? That... Sexual urge needs to be fulfilled through a relationship 
as opposed to just you know a person fulfilling their own their own desires. At this moment, when Boaz says to Ruth, "Me at," this is a, a pause, okay, as opposed to his ancestors who all made serious mistakes. Yehuda who doesn't even ask who Tamar is, right? Lot who doesn't even you know doesn't know that his daughters are the ones who are seducing him, and he should have known. Okay, it's not that you need. Know, sometimes you need to seek out information, not just wait for it, you know, to be revealed to you. But he says, "Wait a second, who are you, Mi'at?" And in that way, he's also it's about personalizing this this sexual urge. Okay, and we learn about his exemplary character in the midrash. He is compared to none other than than Yosef Atzadik, who Eishet Potiphar tries to seduce. Vayima, right? He refuses to be with Eishet Potiphar, and he, and he sees the He sees the image of his father. The same thing is, is said here about uh, about Yosef, that Yosef about Boaz. That Boaz actually even takes a shvua. Look at Ruth Rab on the bottom here. Boaz takes a shvua. He swears. Okay, yeah, let's just look at the source here. Three people, the urges almost overcame them. They made a, a vow, an oath, and it prevented them from sinning. Yosef, David, Boaz. Yosef, as he says, David, when he promises not to hurt Shaul, even though Shaul is pursuing him. Not the story of Bathsheba. And the third, Boaz, Now, later on he says, Chayashem, it's a form of Shvat. I swear I'm not going to lay with you now. I'm going to wait until we do this in a proper context, in a relationship, in a marriage. Not just, you know, uh, one-nighter. Look at Pasuk They sleep next to each other, but not with each other. Okay, and that's... And then, and then they, the next chapter is about figuring out a legal way for him to marry her and to be her redeemer. Um, okay. So, fascinating comparison here between... You have Boaz who breaks the family, who breaks the family tradition. The family tradition is to have all this, these complicated, problematic relationships. Boaz had, almost walks into that situation, but then refuses. And this is the gvura of Boaz. Boaz is is, is um, introduced as a gibor chai, as a, as a strong, you know, world, world man, as a leader, and he he really stands up. To the to the test of this uh, of this particular moment, as opposed to his ancestors who did not. Okay, and so this is a redemptive. This is redeeming the sins of the past. David Hamelech will carry both the strength of Boaz as well as some of the the sins of his past. And we spoke about the Kupashel Shkatzin, right or Shratzin, that every leader needs to have. Uh, something negative or problematic in their past, and it reminds them to be humble. And this is, this is the example for David HaMelech, okay? And every leader needs to have this. Now, the, um, now let's just compare for a second Boaz and Shimshon. Now everything becomes a little bit more clear. Two personalities, one falls prey to his desires and his urges, and thereby fails in his national mission. The other one controls himself maintains his self-dignity, his self-discipline, his self-control right at the important moment to be able to enable there to be a redemptive relationship that's going to bring forth David HaMelech, who is, you know, going to bring Melech HaMashiach. So this is, the, this is the source of ultimate redemption. It's all this particular moment. Is Boaz going to sin or is Boaz going to make the right decision? Okay, that's the, that's the, the question. That, 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 you know, the, the challenge that he, that he faces. Now, but there's a little bit of a deeper connection between Shimshon and, and Boaz. Okay, so I pointed out, and Yael Ziger really, really points this out very beautifully, that there are, um, you know, you have here, first of all, there, there are a few linguistic connections. Just like in Yitziat Mitzrayim, is a moment of potential redemption. For Boaz, it becomes a time of redemption. But for Shimshon, Vahibachatzi Halayla is a time of uh, essentially of sin. There's nothing redeeming again about Shimshon's behavior. That's number one. Number two, 
this language of Vayilafet, Vayilpot, only appears in two places in Tanakh, by Boaz and Shimshon. Okay, and there's a Midrash, which indeed connects them. Look at the, on page three of the source sheet. Boaz versus Shimshon. Midrash Tanchuma Parshat Asosiman Dalit. Tov mena. It's good to run away before God. Ze Yosef. That's Yosef. And a sinner is sort of pulled in, is captured by this. Ze Zimri. That's Zimri. Yosef versus Zimri. Davar Acher. Ze Boaz, Shu Omer Lerut Lini Halayla. Vechotei Lakeid Ba Ze Shimshon. The Midrash compares them. Shimshon versus Boaz. There's an even deeper connection. Because guess what time, get what period in history the story of Migilat Rut takes place at the very first Pasuk. This is during the period of the Shoftim. And the Gemara of Abatra suggests that Boaz is one of the Shoftim by the name of Ivtsan. Okay? It's the same period. This is happening all at the same time. And um, now, but there's an, another connection. That if you look in Migilat Rut, Perak Dalid, what is Boaz building by marrying Rut? They say to Rut, they give her a blessing, you should be like Leah and Rachel who built the houses, the homes, the foundations of the Jewish people, the families of the Jewish people. Boaz and Rut are building homes, Batim. Who else built Batim? Vayas lehem Batim. Shifran Pua, the maidservants in Zefer Shmot. Who's figuratively destroying Batim? Destroying the house, bringing down the house? Shimshot. Now, it's in an act of vengeance against the Plishtim. But he's not building. He's just, you know, he's taken out Plishtim, essentially. Now, there are some other connections I was thinking about that. Truth is that both Boaz and Shimshon are marrying or sort of connected to non-Jewish women. Okay, Ruth and Delila are, are both non-Jewish. Now, and Ruth is, but here's the difference. Ruth is the model Gioret, right? Amech ami velokayach elokai. Your people are my people, your God is my God. What about Shimshon? Did, did Shimshon, okay, we don't know, maybe he did. Did Shimshon convert these women that he was marrying. Based on the pshat, what do you think? <laughs> no way. According to the pshat, no way. However, the Rambam in Ochot Yisurei Bi'ah Perakid Gimel, this Rambam is very famous with regards to conversions that are not done properly. Are the converts still, they have the status of being converts? Listen to the Rambam in Ochot Yisurei Bi'ah Perakid Gimel, don't think that Shimshon and Shlomo married non-Jewish women. The secret of the matter is when a ger comes, you have to check what's your what's your motivation. Why are you doing this? Maybe you met a Jewish girl, you met a Jewish guy, you want to get married. What's your real motivation here? And if you don't find any ulterior motive, you teach them about the Torah, etc. And, uh, and if they accept it, you accept them. Now, therefore, he says, They didn't accept Gerim. Why not? Because in the times of David uh, and, and Shlomo, they were prosperous. Many people wanted to join the Jewish community. It's like uh, women in New York want to marry a Jewish banker, right? It's a, it's a good life, okay? So, uh, you know, and therefore you never know what their motivations are, okay? And therefore they're not considered good gerim. The Afel began, but then he says, but nonetheless, there were many gerim in this time. We made David Shlomo. And the Beitin had doubts about their status. They didn't bring them close, but they didn't push them away. They didn't know what to do with them. So because Shlomo and Shimshon were marrying, you know, converting these women with problematic situations, it, they were treated as if they were non-Jewish. 
And in many cases, they prove themselves to be, you know, follow after idolatrous practices. Um, so basically, these were women who their status was questionable. Gayrim, who their status was questionable from the beginning, from the outset, and baiting it, you know, had wait and see type of policy. But this is a classic example of a problematic gear. So Ruth is the ideal gioret, and Shimshon's gioret are a model of a problematic gioret, okay, where they're converting out of lust, out of love, out of whatever it is, okay? So we have here Boaz's restraint versus Shimshon's, Shimshon's weaknesses. Two very different personalities. Okay. I'd come with, uh, with Torah stuff. Now, it's, it's 9.35 and we're running late. So um, what I want to do is, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, I sent you an article, okay, by, uh, I sent you an article by Marty Linsky and Ron Chaifetz in Leadership on the Line, which is about managing your hungers, okay? It's a really, really important article to read. Okay, I'll just read the first paragraph. From our own observation and painful personal experience, we know the cleanest way for an organization to bring you down is to let yourself down. Then no one else feels responsible. All too often we self-destruct or give others the ammunition they need to shoot us down. But sometimes we bring ourselves down by forgetting to pay attention to ourselves. We get caught up in the cause and forget that exercising leadership is at heart a personal activity. It challenges us intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. But with the adrenaline pumping, we can work ourselves into believing we are somehow different and therefore not subject to the normal human frailties that can defeat moral, ordinary mortals on ordinary missions. We begin to act as if we are physically and emotionally indestructible. Now, we're going to pause here. There's still more to do with this piece. Um, and we're going to talk about what happens to leaders in positions of power. Shimshon and Boaz are two interesting examples. When we allow our hungers to run amok, and we don't restrain them. We're not aware of them. And this is, we're going to get a better understanding of what happens to leaders, as we spoke about in the beginning. What happens to leaders in positions of power? What are our needs in these moments? And how do we deal with these challenges uh, that leaders have? The need for intimacy, the need for affirmation, the need for power, control, and what it does to us. And I think that the examples of of Boaz and, and Shimshon are fascinating examples to think about in light of this leadership challenge. Okay, we're going to pause here um, and we'll pick up with this piece you know, the next time, we, uh, next, time we, next time we meet. Okay. Tough. So just carrying on from last week, we spoke about Shimshon and Boaz and the difference between these two leaders who are connected through a Midrash, although there's a deeper connection between them because Shimshon operates in the time of the Shoftim, as well as Boaz. Okay, Boaz, Vahibi Meshvot Shoftim. And the fundamental difference between these two leaders is that Shimshon is incapable of controlling his, his desires, you know, running after plishti women. He can't, he just can't control himself. And the lack of self-discipline speaks to the challenges that Jewish people faced in that time. Whereas Boaz is challenged in another way. Boaz is challenged also, interestingly, by not a non-Jewish woman, in a sense, Ruth, okay, or a person who's going through a conversion process of sorts, and she sort of tests him. You know, she says, hey, she comes to him in the middle of the night in the field, proposes to him, and he actually restrains himself. And he says, wait a second, Miat, who are you? Okay, um, we spoke about this, from, we went on a little bit of a tangent speaking about, from a Jewish sexual ethics standpoint, Eliezer Berkovitz, that the, you know, the object versus the subject in a relationship, okay, is a big part of, of what happens there, but it's also the, self, the self-restraint that he, that he displays, and that self-restraint is, uh, you know, sort of what's carried down, what's transmitted through the Davidic line all the way, and that's why David Amelach ultimately comes from the seat of, of both Boaz and, uh, and Ruth. Now, connecting to this in a more practical way, in Leadership on the Line, by Ronald Chaifetz and Marty Linsky, and I've quoted this book a few times. There's a chapter called Manage, Manage Your Hungers. And, I mean, this chapter is the ABCs of how to prevent yourself from getting caught up in scandals as a leader, as a CEO, as an employer, as a, as a rabbi, I mean, you name it, whatever position of power. And listen to what he says here. Every human being needs some degree of power and control. Affirmation and importance 
as well as intimacy and delight. We know of no one who prefers to feel entirely powerless, unimportant, or untouched in life. Yet each of these normal human needs can get, can get us into trouble when we lose the personal wisdom and discipline required to manage them productively and fulfill them appropriately. Now that's true of ever, anyone, right? That's true of any human being. But somehow when you're in a position of power, when people look up to you, when people seek out your wisdom and your advice and your counsel, when you can control people's jobs and lives and futures, somehow things shift a little bit, okay? And you're actually more vulnerable to these things. The desire to fulfill the needs of others can become a vulnerability if it feeds into your own normal hungers for power, importance, and intimacy. How often are we helping someone and as much as they need us, we need them to want us to help them, right? Like, you know, it's so important to be able to distinguish between what am I, what am I giving in this situation and what am I gaining from it? What does it do for me? Okay, and when a leader, when a leader loses perspective, uh, we, we get into trouble. This is especially true if you have strong hungers to begin with or if your own needs are not being adequately met. Okay, now... Um, you know, he goes into each of these. Power and control, okay? Um, so, uh, who comes up here in this chapter? This book is written in, in 2000, and Marty Linsky, I think, worked for... somebody involved in some Democratic uh, administration. So, you know, Bill Clinton comes up, features prominently at this, at this time. But, uh, now, if you find yourself heroically stepping into the breach to restore order... It is important to remember that the authority you gain is a product of social expectations. To believe it comes from you is an illusion. Don't let it get to your head. People grant you power because they expect you to provide them with a service. Again, I'm just reading from different pieces here. Um, But just as it is important to keep a critical check on the positive feedback you receive, we need all affirmation, but accepting accolades in an undisciplined way can lean to grandiosity, an inflated view of yourself and your cause. People may invest you with magic and you you can begin to think you have it. They, pay, they may put too much faith in you. So this is fascinating in terms of what people see in us. We, we need the affirmation, but it can't be, we can't let it go to our heads. We can't, let it be a, we can't let it be a drug. You see this so often with, with musicians, people who get up on stage, right? 100,000 people screaming and yelling. And I mean, you imagine what it does to your, to your psyche. It's a drug. It's a drug. And this is why so many of these great stars become drug addicts because they can't fill that void afterwards and they, that sense of affirmation and love and worship, adoration, you know, they, you start to internalize that stuff and it leads you to a very, very dangerous, uh, dangerous place. Listen to this. In ancient Rome, the emperors had a man stand close to them at all times whose job was to remind them of their mortality. For an authority figure in an environment of unbridled political cunning and savagery, having someone perform this task was no doubt necessary for a day-to-day survival, not to mention success. We suggest that you find someone to do this job for you, someone not subject to your authority. Okay, that's interesting. I don't know, do any of you have that person, that kids? I've heard, I once heard a rabbi say that when he goes home, it's, you know, when he's in the Beit Midrash and teaching these students and showing off how brilliant he is and, you know, da da da. But then he goes home and he's put in his place by his wife. That was the uh, so it could be our kids, it could be our wife, it could be, but it could also be someone who, who you can, can speak to in your own organization who can really tell you the truth, right? How often do leaders get rid of everyone who could act, who's willing to really say you know what they need to hear, and just put yes men around them? Wasn't there, isn't there something like this in the? I seem to remember something the Kohen Gadol in Yom Kippur and the. Chachamim are like around him and they keep hmm. reminding him of his I don't know if it's reminding him of his mortality but it's reminding him that he needs to focus and needs to be on the job. But so the whole night, he stays up the whole night before Yom Kippur. Imagine preparing, imagine you know, a whole Yom Kippur but staying up the night the night of Yom Kippur to make sure it was really to make sure that he didn't uh, have any you know, seminal missions so that he wasn't Tameh but it was also to be mentally prepared and he would sit and teach if he could and if not, he would at least learn. They would teach him. And then he would start at the break of dawn. He would start the, the Avodah of Yom Kippur. So that's, but they, what they would say to him is, we just want to check to make sure that you're not like a, a kofar, that you don't harbor any radical thoughts in your mind. Uh, you know, they would, they would have to check that. But uh, maybe that's what you're referring to. The, um, 
man, this is fascinating. Managing, man, managing one's grandiosity means giving up on the idea of being the heroic lone warrior who saves the day. Like we have this vision of a leader, like you know, just you know, coming in and 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 saving the day, swooping in and solving everything. And and but what about that model of a leader who's the, the team player, the one who empowers, the one who challenges others to do the work and not for them to do the work for them. People may beg you to play that role. Don't let them seduce you. It robs them of the opportunity to develop their own strengths and settle their own issues. Don't begin to believe that the problem is yours to carry and solve. Uh, right? This comes up in psychology as well. You, you can never really solve someone else's problems for them. Psychologists can help someone to find the solutions on their own. Right? And if you do solve people's problems for them, again, they, they never develop those independent skills. Um, okay, just be aware that part of what impels them to serve people is their need to matter. Kept in balance, the feeling that you're on this earth for a reason generates meaning and caring, but this need can easily become a source of vulnerability. Okay, so, but it's interesting because yeah. in psychology, obviously, the concept is transference, right? That, mm -hmm. That's exactly the concept that you're talking about. But I think in psychology, the idea is that transference is important. So that it's important for the person to believe that the therapist could help them. Correct. There's got to be some... Therapeutic value. Correct. Correct. You need to believe that you're sitting there for a reason and this is going to be a, a productive hour and, and that they can help you. Correct. And that's the danger. That you, you do need a little bit of that sort of magic. Like you need people to look up to you to a degree. Otherwise, they... No one's going to do it. No one's going to act. No one's going to move. It, it's a motivator, you know, of sorts. I like this line. There's, there's uh, this Pete Powell, this minister, says, he quotes standard advice given to many young ministers during their training. If you act like Jesus, you're going to end up like him. Okay? So it's, uh, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good line. So, so this, is the, this is managing our hungers and uh, intimacy and delight. I mean, this is, you know, think of many, many examples of this. Um, but uh, this is this is classic. This is Boaz and Shimshon. Okay, I think playing out in a very a very practical way, and uh, and we need we all need to be on the lookout for these vulnerabilities that we have, especially as we move up in the chain of leadership uh, leadership hierarchy.